And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I only know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you so much, Trevor. Let's ask God to help us to understand what we've read there. In fact, more than understand it, to actually put it into practice. That's the challenge always, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father God, we know that there are some things in your word that are hard to understand. There are other things that are relatively easy to understand, but hard to practice. And we recognise that this is the case with this chapter. Unless your Holy Spirit dwells in us richly, our fleshly desires rapidly take over and we find ourselves not really loving other people. Will you please encourage us now as we listen to your word, as we unpack it, may you unpack the priorities of our hearts and teach us to love for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, ever since I've arrived this morning, I've had people ask, what happened to your face? Um, well, we live at Riverside. Riverside's on a hill. You go down the driveway, turn right, and our garage is in underneath. And there's an internal door in the garage and you can walk 
from the internal door out and you have to press the electric roller door. But the car takes up basically the full space in the garage. So I was in a hurry and I pressed the garage door button and it hadn't fully risen so I ducked under it, raced around to get around to the driver's side and didn't see that the roller door right in front of me hadn't fully risen. I went bang, like that, gave myself an awful fright, but not such a fright that I didn't look over my shoulder to see if the neighbour was cacking himself laughing. So when I saw that everything looked like I was, no one had seen me, I sort of oh, moaned and groaned. And, but that, that's not actually what did the damage. Um, the, the marks actually happened, oh, this happened to me twice this week. Uh, I went bushwalking with, with Robin on Friday to um, Holwell Gorge and I just didn't see a branch right across in front of us and I walked straight into it, kabang! And I'm sitting there moaning and groaning and there's blood this time and I'm thinking, this is twice in one week, Lord, what is going on here? And it's like... <laughs> That's exactly where these are from. <laughs> but I thought, you know, it's like a parable, really, because sometimes the things that are right in front of us, we either don't see them or we don't act on them. And I think that's exactly what this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is about. We all know in our heart of hearts we meant to love one another. But let's be honest, we struggle. We find it difficult to really do it, to put it into practice. And this, this um, chapter, all about love, starts with a warning. And it's a warning saying that if you use spiritual gifts but in an unloving way, then basically they're nothing. And this chapter occurs between chapters 12 and 14. It seems at first look to be a curious positioning of the chapter. Chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts, what they are, who they're from. And chapter 14 is all about spiritual gifts and how they're to be exercised together. But sandwiched between them is this chapter on love. And when you sit down and think about it, the obvious hits you. Yeah, you can have spiritual gifts, but if you don't use them in a loving way, you are going to be counterproductive. And that's exactly what he says in the first three verses. You'll see he's saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Basically, you're just a windbag. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So think about those, the wordings there. You will, you will be nothing, you will gain nothing, you will achieve nothing. That's, that's pretty serious. 
I, it's very sobering to think about how, how many of the acts of service that I might have done to the Lord in the Lord's name for the Lord's people may actually amount to nothing because I haven't actually really been done in love. They might have been done for whatever other reason or motive. I find this a particularly sobering wake-up call. And I think we all should. The Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts and the offices um, with an attitude of competition, not love. The rest of the book tells us the kinds of behaviours that they are engaging in. And they were selfishly serving one another, not, yeah, they were selfishly serving themselves, not each other, not loving one another. So Paul isn't minimising the gifts. He's simply saying that they'll have no beneficial effect in the body unless you use the gifts in a loving way. Love is the measure of all things, not giftedness. But sometimes great giftedness is very notable. If someone is very eloquent or performs miracles or speaks in all kinds of tongues, they can grab the limelight and people think, wow, they must be a godly person. They must be really close to God. But, but who knows what's going on in their heart? Why are they doing these things? Love is the litmus test of why we do what we do. Because love is about an intelligent act of the will for the benefit of another. You're acting to serve others and bless them. So gifts have no positive spiritual effect in the life of the church if there is no love because it is love that the spirit uses to build the church. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Now, I'm sure we all agree with this in principle. It's like motherhood and apple pie. But we, yeah, we know it, but do we actually take it on board? It's, it, you can be in exactly the same position as me. Not, the, the garage door is right there and bang, you, you, oh, oh, that's right. Or the branch across the track, bang! Oh, oh I, I didn't see that. I, I kind of saw it in the distance, but I didn't take it on board. You can see this in the distance, if you like, but not actually take it on board. So what Paul is at pains to do he's, is to spell out what this will look like in practice. So phrase by phrase, from, chap uh, from verse 4 through to verse 7, he just unpacks what it's going to look like for them to use their gifts in a loving way. So let's look at each phrase. It says, love is patient and kind. So love rises above petty things. It's generous in the way it treats others. Think of Christ's patience with Peter after the times Peter sinned against him and the Lord forgave him. Love not only patiently bears with wrongs, but it responds positively with deeds of kindness. I remember when I was pastoring a church in Queensland 
and I was in an absolute hurry to get some photocopying done on the Saturday, ready for Sunday, but we were due to go out as a family in the afternoon, and I'm in there at the photocopier, and the photocopier is not working. And I, you know, you could nearly see the fumes starting to rise. I'm thinking, Robert and the kids, they're going to be, oh, no, I need to get going. Then the door opens, and a dear lady, a volunteer from the church, has been in there cleaning the church. We live right next door to the church. The manse was next door, so there was no escaping what was going on. And so she, she walks in and she says, the vacuum cleaner is broken down. Can you help me? And I'm kind of... But trying to disguise it. So I go through the door and I look at the vacuum cleaner for about 30 seconds, pronounce it dead and beyond you know, help, and just say, and go back to my photocopying. That night, I, my conscience was smitten. I thought, I did not treat this lady with love. If love is patient and kind, I did not love her. My real mistake was not to fire up a prayer to the Lord quickly and ask for his help in the moment of what had happened. I just responded. All I could see was what I had to do and I didn't really consider what she was trying to do. Now, I'm sure you can relate to this sort of thing. It's so easily done, easily, easily done. But to the extent that we are not patient and not kind, we are not loving. It's as simple as that. And he says, love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. So, so think about it. Envy or jealousy and its twin sister covetousness reside in our hearts. Sin reigns in the human heart. Even in a forgiven sinner, there is still sin in our hearts. Until heaven arrives or we go to be with the Lord, we are going to contend with sin. And sin dwelling in the human heart will break out at any opportunity. And one of the ways it breaks out is in terms of covetousness. We see something and desire it. It's like the original sin of Adam and Eve repeated all over again. Cain envied his brother and killed him. But it started in his heart. How do we react? when other Christians receive blessings or benefits that we lack? Do we allow the sparks of envy to burn and grow to the full flame of jealousy? By contrast, love is actually happy for those who by sheer hard work or God's good providence have what we don't. We can actually be happy for them if you love them. I'm so glad for you. And, and you're not sort of murmuring away and you're, I wish I had it. Envy is incompatible with love. Envy gives rise to simmering jealousy and resentment. And unless we're very, very careful, it'll break out into worse things. Love is not boastful or proud. 
Pride refers to that inward feeling or attitude of the heart. Boasting refers to the outward displays of self-importance, our words and our behaviour. You start boasting, but it begins with pride in the heart. One of my favourite movies is I Am Sam. Some of you might have seen it. It stars Sean Penn, a loving father with an intellectual disability who loves his bright, inquisitive young daughter, Lucy. Lucy's about seven, and already her intellectual capacities are outstripping Sam's, her father's. The mother has deserted the marriage and left the home, left Sean with, uh, left Sam with Lucy. Now, Sam dotes on Lucy, loves her to bits, is thrilled to bits that she's growing up and is so smart. He boasts about his, about his smart daughter. But eventually, um, well-meaning authorities get wind of the fact that Lucy could be in a position of danger. It's the whole safe ministry, duty of care sort of thing that kicks in. Uh, how can this father with intellectual disabilities actually raise a daughter? What ha happens when she hits puberty? What happens when she's way, way, way smarter than him? And all of those sorts of questions. So they, they take Lucy away. And Sam suffers the horrible indignity of having supervised visiting rights to his own daughter, not being able to see the girl that he pours out his life for. The movie goes on and, long story short, he hires a, a high-powered lawyer, a type A personality lawyer, who takes on his case pro bono, free, and... Uh, in the process, Sam demonstrates to everyone concerned, from the lawyer to his ex-wife to the powers that be and all the authorities, this guy is a suitable father because he loves his daughter. Love overcomes so many obstacles and problems. You can have IQ, you can have all kinds of things, but if you don't have love, what is it going to profit you? What does it achieve? So I learned from this movie that genuine love is more to do with the heart than intelligence or abilities. Where pride and boasting crave attention, love gets down on its knees and out of genuine concern for others will do what's needed for their good. There's no boasting in that. There's no pride in that. I wonder how we're going with loving as we should. It says it's not easily angered or keeps no record of wrongs. One of the commentators I read in preparing for the sermon said that he actually had a fellow in his church who every time someone did something to him that was wrong or he thought was wrong, he literally kept a record of it in his little black book. Everybody knew about it. His wife certainly knew about it. His kids knew about it. And other members of the church, if you were written in his book, you were basically written off. Now, that is exactly what love doesn't do. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. 
It's willing to let things go through to the keeper, the keeper of all things, God. If God treated us the way we often treat other people like that, we would be, we'd be just written off. God loved us enough to send his son Jesus into the world to live, to die, to rise again for the forgiveness of our sins. And we who've been forgiven much should be willing to forgive others much. He who forgives much loves much. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It, is, it willingly forgives. I wonder how we're going with that. I find this an absolute wake-up call. We know these things. We, it's right in front of us here in the Bible. Do we do them? Do we cry out to God for the grace, Lord, help me to love others as you have loved me? Or do we forget about these things? We need to remember the Lord sees everything we do. The drivers we cut off in traffic, the words we say to our spouse or children, how we treat our friends and what we say about them behind their backs or on social media, all of it, everything, always. He sees it all right into the depths of our being, the ugly darkness of our sinful hearts, he sees the lot. The only hope we've got is to confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. That's, the, that's what love does. Love is not provoked. It does not harbour evil thoughts. It rejoices with the truth. So Christian love isn't irritated easily, unlike my behaviour with the lady with the broken vacuum cleaner. Love keeps on keeping on, if you like. It says it doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. No wonder it is the most excellent way. It just keeps on keeping on. So through Christ's love in us, we can bear up under all kinds of duress and problems. If our love tank is filled by the Spirit of Christ, we can give out to others. But if we're not receiving the love of God, we'll probably crave that love in other places, in other ways that are unhealthy. Love, when, when Christ's love fills our hearts, we have the power to get up and go the second mile. We receive the strength and the grace to keep on keeping on. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me says Paul. Why? Because the love of God is in his heart, overflowing. He might be in prison, and he can still say that. Love is the pathway to victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we get knocked down, the love of Christ picks us up again. So in these verses, Paul is patiently rebuking the Corinthians for their lack of love. 
They weren't patient with each other. They envied each other's spiritual gifts. They were proud and critical of one another. The, his very analogy, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Or the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you, probably is an implication of, uh, an illustration of how they were behaving with one another. They lacked modesty and grace in their behaviour. They sought to uphold their own rights, even if others got hurt, to the point of suing one another in the courts. They smirked at sin when they should have dealt with it. We also see in these verses, though, a picture of Christ who showed us God's way of love. You could substitute the word Christ for love here, and it would describe the gospel. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonour, etc., etc. It's describing the fruit of the Spirit, which is Christ in action. To love people in this way, Paul describes in these verses, is to reveal something of the very nature of God and the gospel. What Paul lists here is the human counterpart to God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. If God has done that for us, then here's how we should respond to one another, especially if we also love the Lord. We're all part of his family. So truly as Christ is the fulfilment of the law, so love is the fulfilment of the law. They are one and the same because God is love. And then verses 8 through to 13, the end of the chapter, love is the way forward. So using spiritual gifts unlovingly just makes your windbag and achieves nothing. He's then spelled out how to do it in practice, what that looks like. He then says, moving forward right on into eternity, love's going to be the way to keep on going. Love will never fail, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that we will never fail. What it means is that the potent force and moral authority of authentic love will never fail if it's given its rightful place. If we follow the way of love, it'll have a compelling authenticity and integrity that God honours and he sees that even when others may not see that. So we may fail, but living God's way of love does not fail. So unlike love, spiritual gifts will pass away when we die or when Jesus returns. Prophetic utterances will cease. Our tongues will be stilled when we die. Different languages, which are part of God's curse at Babel, designed to scatter and divide the human race, will be totally unnecessary in heaven. Though some believe everybody's going to speak Hebrew in heaven. Gifts of special knowledge will be put aside when we come face to face with God, who knows all things. Why will you need special knowledge when you see God face to face? But love and the graces it produces will continue on into eternity. 
So there's been a lot of debate over verse 10 about when the completeness comes. The two views in summary are, some believe completeness refers to the completed canon of the Bible. Once the Bible was written, the New Testament was finished, then we didn't need spiritual gifts anymore. But I think we still need spiritual gifts, teaching, etc. We Those gifts continue. Others believe that completeness is referring to heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy and miraculous healings will cease then. And that's the position I think is credible. The context, I think, favours that. Paul had in mind heaven and the new world to come. Even with a completed canon of the Bible, we still have to walk by faith, not by sight. We still see only uh, a reflection as in a mirror. The, the word of God acts like a mirror. So at the moment we know God through what is written in his word, what we see uh, as people live out, the reality of the gospel in their lives, but it's still immediately, it's still via something else. But in heaven it will be face to face. I think that is what it's pointing us through to. So in verse 11, Paul uses a simple example of childhood. We do not condemn a child because he talks like a child, but we do condemn an adult for using baby talk. It's time, says the apostle, for you babies to grow up and start behaving like adults. Instead of using your spiritual gifts for your own selfish ends, use them to serve the body. The Corinthians were using tongues and other special manifestations of the Spirit like excited children at a Christmas party. Look what I've got. Mine's better than yours. Or, Mummy, I want Jimmy's present. Why can't I have one of those? That's not love. That's utter selfishness. He's telling them to grow up. There will always be room for growth in the church. And while we're growing, we will know and see imperfectly. Corinth was famous for its brass mirrors. And you could, when, apparently when brass is very polished up, you, you can see a pretty good reflection, not as well as what we have in our mirrors today, but a fairly good reflection, enough to be able to do your hair, etc., or see if you've got a bit of a bang on your face. The church grows closer to perfection only through love. That's what we need more than anything else. Build up the body of Christ in love. Use your gifts to build up and serve one another in love. God calls us to follow Christ and that is the way of love. So faith, hope, love, these abide. But love is the greatest because God is love. Through these words, God urges us to prefer that more excellent way that he mentioned at the end of chapter 12. He urges us to prefer the way of love. It's far more satisfying than the excitement of using earthly spiritual gifts for our own ends. Now, it would be remiss of me to, to finish without at least saying one other thing that's, that's obvious right in front of our face here, 
And that is that heaven will be a world of love. Utter world of love. In heaven, there will be no selfishness. In heaven, we're, we're always going to think well of one another. We won't have sin in our hearts. We will be trying to outstrip one another in doing good and honouring the Lord, but not in a competitive way, out of the desire to please our Heavenly Father and out of our desire for the good of one another. That's the way of love. If you ever get a chance to read a contemporary rendering of Edwards's series of sermons on love, Read this. It's available in Kurong quite cheaply. Heaven is a world of love. I've been reading it this week and he makes some utterly astonishing um, observations about the glories of heaven and how we won't envy one another in our different stations and positions. There seem to be degrees of reward in heaven. The ones who receive greater rewards in heaven will know exactly why they're given those rewards. And the ones who receive less rewards will understand exactly why they've received lesser rewards and they'll see God's fairness in all of that. And besides, because sin will be removed from their heart, they aren't going to envy those that have greater rewards, but will be happy for them. And similarly, those who have greater rewards in heaven won't be doing this. Because they'll be about trying to serve others. Because that's the nature of love. He makes observation after observation after observation that is just so incredibly helpful. So if Christian service without love is a waste of time and love always strives unselfishly for the good of others and heaven is a world of love, I think we ought to pay attention to love. Don't miss What's right in front of your eyes? Look at it. See what we're told here about the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus. Behold that gospel and it will point you through to the way of love. I encourage you to use 1 Corinthians 13 as a kind of checklist to look back over your day. As you go to bed, think, how patient and kind was I today? Was I envious of anyone? Am I nursing a hurt from someone, uh, that s something they said to me? Release it to God. Forgive the person in your heart. Pray a blessing on them instead. Confess any impatience or envy to God. Then lay your head on your pillow and think about the cross where Jesus laid down his life for you. Thank God for such unselfish love. Ask him for the strength for you to love others in that kind of way. And from time to time, set aside an hour or two or an afternoon and pray through 1 Corinthians 13. Examine your heart recalibrate your attitudes and behaviour by the gold standard of love. Thank God for the world of heavenly love to come. Let's pray.